This episode of Screen Talk was recorded with two people in two different parts of the world on Skype. So we hope you'll excuse some of the scratchy audio here and there. It's really not too bad. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson in Los Angeles. And um, I'm out in France for a film festival of sorts we can talk about in a little bit. But first, I feel like we have to get some more headline news out of the way. It's one of those things where a new cycle kicks up and uh, there's a certain story that we have to keep coming back to. And sometimes it's the Oscars and... You know, it it has its ups and downs, and sometimes it's something like this awful Harvey Weinstein sexual assault situation, which just keeps getting crazier and more unsettling and affecting different parts of the industry. I'd like to suggest that it's not awful in the end. Well, And I'll only say that because I do have the perhaps Pollyanna-ish feeling that there's possibility for real change, that this is something, this horrible thing, this horrible reveal, uh, this ongoing expose could in fact be yielding some positive uh, change. Yeah, we should talk about that because right before we started recording today, we were wondering for a while when Quentin Tarantino was really going to weigh in on this stuff, given how closely associated he's been with Harvey Weinstein for his whole career. Lo and behold, he finally did give an interview to the same New York Times reporter who was one of the two women who broke the original Harvey Weinstein piece. And um, it is a positive piece, I think, on a certain level, because he's doing everything in his power to say both, I knew that a lot of this was going on, and I feel terrible about it, and is trying to somehow use that feeling to send a positive message to the industry. It's a very interesting story because you, on the one hand, you realize that he's forced in some ways to do that. I'd like to think he's doing it because it's the right thing to do, but he's forced to in a way because he dated Mira Sorvino. And Mira Sorvino has admitted that, that she was harassed by Harvey Weinstein during the time or assaulted, you know, allegedly by him uh, around the time of Mighty Aphrodite, which happened to be, you know, around that time that Tarantino dated her and knew, you know, admits that she told him about it as one would if if one was dating someone. So he can't really profess to not know. And obviously he went over this with his handlers and got a lot of advice about what to do and what to say. And and, and I, I believe that he's sincere, but he, he had to go... He had to go all the way in, all in, as you say. He had well, to admit but, that you know, he knew. The other thing I think is really notable about it is that, I mean, yes, he he had to say something because of the Mira Servino factor, but he also had to say something because if he, he said nothing, he'd make things much worse. And if he tried to somehow distance himself from it, he would be in the worst possible situation because he'd, he'd basically be trying to make him seem like he, like he was a total innocent. So, Which would be impossible, is, because if you know Quentin Tarantino, you know that he, you know, he's, he's, he's been a roving bachelor for, for many years and uh, enjoys the company of, of women and likes to go to parties, and, and this we know. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but but he, uh, he would be, 
he would be, uh, I think, um, I think he did the right thing. I'm very, I'm, I'm, I think he did well here and I am inclined to uh, applaud him. Although there are those on Twitter who are not, you know, this isn't enough for them. Well, it's, it's never going to be enough for some people. And on some level, anyone who was, can say that they were aware of sexual assault happening, especially people with power in the film industry and they didn't do something, you know, the very notion of exonerating yourself by stepping forward and doing something is not, not, most people are are not going to be able to to completely resolve those feelings. I guess the, the thing that's kind of fascinating here is that it's, it's the kind of master template for how other people who may not have been able to formulate how they're feeling uh, are now, you know, basically seeing this is one way that you could be processing. I mean, we're seeing a degree of transparency about the inner workings of uh, people in the film community with tremendous influence that we've never really seen before. And people usually, like Tarantino, don't get this candid about personal interactions and right. girlfriends. But he was a special case, kind of right. And the reason why... Jody Cantor was chasing him so um, ardently, and I'm sure she was not alone, um, is, is that he had a special close relationship with Harvey, and um, Harvey was not, you know, just the guy who made his movies. Quentin didn't make his movies anywhere else, and he was given extraordinary freedom, and he, he trusted Harvey to leave him alone and let him make his movies, and he was an important... Um, source of of income too, you know, because his movies for the most part were very successful. Yeah, he made him rich. And so you you have Harvey as his father figure and his patron, and and now you know someone who uh, was way worse than than Quentin realized, it, although he had seen some of his activities and interpreted them the way many people did. I'm sure. You know, it was well, it was see, over the line, the I, but it wasn't that bad, and that was just Harvey, right? Right, but you also have to think about. I mean, a day does not go by because now we're in award season, and uh, our social lives and film events kind of collide in this really dramatic kind of day by day kind of a thing. And I've just been going to a lot of events lately, and a day does not go by that I don't come in contact with somebody who has some kind of history with Miramax or the Weinstein Company or Harvey in one way, shape or form, who's wrestling with, you know, how can I possibly say something publicly about any association here when by virtue of associating with this person, I could somehow seem complicit in this terrible thing. So that was why I was so proud of Mark Gill for speaking up yeah, exactly. in the first place. Well, the other thing, by the way, that, that has come up is just this notion that there are so many people uh, who worked there for, for decades who, when they left, had to sign, you know, exit papers, you know, whatever the deal term is, you know, that, that basically most of the boilerplate exit memos that you sign when you leave a company's employ 
also say you will not talk about this company and it, it, a version of an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. And so it's sort of, I find that whole aspect of this, I mean, not only are there so many filmmakers and so many people who were involved in these movies over so many years, and that's why they keep coming, um, but now we're getting people who worked for other people. We're, we're, we're getting, you know, Roy Price at Amazon. We're getting uh, stories about another big executive who's, who's on the way out um, because there are multiple complaints at uh, Verizon. You know, the, these things are, are Vimeo, I think. It, Vimeo. These things are going on uh, and they're going to continue to go on as, as the industry processes it. You have, you know, John Bailey writing a memo to the members of the Academy you have, um, you know, trying to process what the code of conduct should be for people going forward. You have the Producers Guild um, after they are processing the departure of Harvey Weinstein, you know, saying that there should be some kind of commission, an industry-wide commission. Bringing, you know, Kathleen Kennedy wants uh, to bring all sorts of different organizations together to to try to 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 resolve what, how we go forward. There's a lot of movement toward reform, if you like, uh, right. real consciousness raising that, and reform. I mean, you also have to be uh, cognizant of the fact that, you know, one of the things that's going on here is there's a dissonance between professionals who are trying to figure out a professional solution here and creatives and non-professionals who are just trying to make sense of a very disorienting period of time when a lot of stuff that's been latent or repressed is somehow coming to the surface, and you see that on the on the, this kind of micro level on a day to day basis. I mean, this this crazy story the other day where Charlene Yi tweeted that David Cross said something racist to her ten years ago. I felt like it was somehow part of this cycle, even though that wasn't a sexual harassment story. No, I think there is a kind of window that's opened, and especially on yeah. social media where there's a group, a collective sense of, of being able to suddenly say things that you weren't able to say before, that you have permission, that you have support, that you're not alone. Uh, it's been remarkable, the whole hashtag Me Too thing that Alyssa Milano unleashed, um, you know, the Sarah Pauly story in the New York Times. I mean, there's just a long list of people who've spoken out in very effective and, and articulate ways um and uh that's why i'm so optimistic that there's yeah I mean, it's not just going to go away is, hopefully i i hope but you have to remember these are artists that we're talking about and, and there's something about the kind of freewheeling nature of that world that runs counter to the kind to the kind of organized approaches that we've been talking about and so i feel like that's sort of what's what's been fascinating is figuring out how do you rein in creative types so that they learn how to be responsible human beings, even as they're still, you know, freewheeling creative types. And that, that's still Well, kind of the other thing I was talking to we'll uh, Christine Vachon last yeah. night, the producer of Wonderstruck, the new Todd Haynes movie that's opening on Friday. And we were talking about um, the idea that, that, you know, it's baked into the powerful, successful man that he is is going to, you know, go after women. You know that this it, this isn't true of all men. It isn't true of of everyone we know. But there is a, a, an element of the big man on campus, the success, the successful car dealer, uh, the president of the United States, where some kind of powerful. Uh, 
influence over the women around you is something that you can deploy. So should we talk about the Gotham nominations? The Gotham nominations were very interesting. You were one of the voters, along with David Ehrlich and Liz Miller on the television side who work at IndieWire. Well, we were on the nominating committees. It's important to distinguish because the way it works with the Gothams, it's not like any of the other awards that kind of generate news during this cycle, is that you have different committees for each section. Everybody gets into a room and talks things through and comes up with a list of nominees, and that's it. There's, it's not a, it's not really voting. And then there's a second group of people who come in and they do the same thing to choose the winners. So it's, it's an interesting process in the sense that it's uh, an amalgam of people who watch movies all year round who are choosing just kind of the finalists. And but it's very New York, I think. It's a very New York group, and it's a very indie and and um, I don't know. I, I cool. feel like I, I fine. You you be that way. You be cool. But basically, it has an influence on on some films moving forward, gaining momentum, like Get Out or Call Me by Your Name or Lady Bird, which I would have said anyway. We're we're going Obviously. well uh, going into this. Um, so those are the ones we've already been aware we're 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 doing well. Um, and then you have movies like Mudbound, which are still occupying this strange middle ground between, you know, getting nominated for this special ensemble award, uh, but not being nominated in any other categories. So what do you yeah, make kind of, of that? Diss. You know, it's a bit of a diss. It's sort of like we respect this movie for what it is, but it also implies that it's not a universally beloved achievement in other ways. And then and it's the but Netflix I mean, did it's well. Kind of, it's, a, it's a serious period piece about racism. It's a very impressive movie. But I think when you talk about a Call Me By Your Name or you talk about Get Out or something like that, you know, I wasn't on that committee this year. I feel like those kinds of movies generate more enthusiasm because there's just a lot to dig into. I think that there's, um, you know, uh, if I were picking the movies that are going to do well with the critics groups at the end of the year, which are finally going to have more influence over the Oscar race than this particular group of nominations, um, I would say that Lady Bird and a movie that was completely overlooked by this group, Shape of Water, would be uh, candidates. And I would also uh, suggest that Call Me By Your Name uh, will, do, will do well and get out. So uh, these are the movies that are going to do well with the critics. But I, was, I, I wasn't surprised that Wonderstruck didn't get more than an honorary you know, thing for, for uh, Ed Lockman. I wasn't that surprised that Wonder Wheel didn't get anything either um beguile didn't get anything except for exactly and kate wins uh kate winslet that that's a late breaking movie that didn't wasn't seen necessarily until pretty late and there's other movies like chappaquiddick and and hostiles that haven't been seen by a lot of people yet yeah but i don't know i i would assume that if enough people on a nominating committee see a movie and think a performance should be nominated they can they can make that case you they know? did with margot so. robbie for uh i Tanya, which obviously enough people saw at, in toronto or, or at screenings so that it became uh a, a right, nominee a, a late breaking of sorts so that that may bode well i mean that movie still has not been widely screened i mean when it showed up at toronto it didn't even have distribution yet it seems to have gone over well when it was the closing night film at the Hamptons, but it didn't go to New York Film Festival. So 
they're really going to have to push that one out there. Yeah, they've got, hard. they've got, but that was a good, that was a good sign for Margot, Margot Robbie that at least this group was strong, felt strongly enough about it. Uh, whereas I think uh, both Hostiles and Chappaquiddick, which are uh, being distributed by uh, this new company, uh, at least in the film distribution realm, uh, the Byron Allen Entertainment Studio, they're gonna they have catching up to do to 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 get into uh, consciousness of everyone in, as as time goes forward. But they have some time uh, to play with. When is the New York Film and Critics money, gonna when vote you're again? Gazillionaire Byron Allen. Yeah, when are they voting, Eric? The Gotham. I, well, the the ceremony is in, in um, early December, so it'll be right before then. The New York Film Critics. Oh, the New York Film Critics. I thought you meant the Gotham's. New York Film Critics is vo we're, we're voting on November thirtieth, so okay. the week after Thanksgiving, which is just for the record, only one day earlier than we voted last year. A lot of people were saying because we were voting in November, we were trying to push things up and get ahead of everybody, but it really is just a timing thing. It's one day earlier. Um, we'll we'll have seen pretty much everything except for maybe Star Wars and. I don't know, one or two other items. But at the end of the day, that's not even the most important thing. I mean, most people don't see everything before they vote. So we'll see how that shakes down. The It'll other thing that There's came so out, many possibilities. you know, the AFI Fest is going to have the Ridley Scott movie, uh, the Get the Getty kidnapping movie. They're, what's it called? Yeah. The Richest Boy in the World? What's it called? I have it slightly wrong. All the Money wrong. in the World. All the Money in the World. That's one of those titles that you have to memorize. Um, oh, it's going to do great on VOD eventually. Yeah, it starts with an A, right. Um, yeah, all the Money in the World. Spielberg so that's TV. the closing night. Now, the AFI Fest got a bit of a, a surprise piece of news this week, which was that the uh, Los Angeles Film Festival has moved from the summer. It used to be in June. Uh, and until uh, late September, which puts it right around the same time as the New York Film Festival. I spoke to some people over there who didn't want to comment on the record, but the idea I got from them was that they didn't much care. It didn't seem to matter to them. And most people seem to think it'll just take on a lot of the leftover movies from Toronto. But many of those movies might have been played by the AFI Fest, especially the foreign films. So it does yeah, present I mean, some competition it is an for them. choice in that respect because... So the, every year at Venice, by not going, I know that there's a lot of stuff I'm going to try to catch in Toronto. And then all of a sudden, two or three highlights that people say are really good in Venice don't go to Toronto. So there is an opportunity for LAFF in that respect to absorb some stuff from the fall festival that doesn't get a Toronto push. But it's not going to be major titles that could really give a festival a crucial identity for LA. It'll so be another be. it'll be another uh, fall festival and I I sort of wish they had decided to keep trying to resurrect the they the, it, you know they were in a tough position coming after Sundance and Tribeca and South by Southwest and Cannes and and they basically um, had been playing they had sort of sort of dug themselves into a hole with the with with a low quality of films they were showing uh, as they were trying to embrace and the reputation was really circulating widely. yeah so they they were it in is... a tough spot and it's not the fault of the people who are running it now as much as as uh, the people who were running it before but it, it is going to be uh, hard for them I think to to make a much of a push in the fall yeah I, I'm sort of curious about that I mean 
of all times to put it, it's, it's right before New York Film Festival and after TIFF. And as I mean, you, you can't discount how exhausted the media gets trying to keep up with all this stuff. Most of the mainstream media doesn't even dig that deep into the fall festivals because it's just too much to keep tabs on. But, well, they'll be able you know, to get we, some awards, um, you know, stuff going on. That's what they're going for uh, by doing that. And, and then again, they'll, but you know, what the AFI Fest was always doing was getting some of the big titles that were late breaking. So that'll still stay true. It's just one more reminder that everybody wants to get in on this game and it just keeps getting more and more crowded. You I know, know. It's like, it gets really crowded in the fall and then we all kind of speed through December you take a breather for New Year's and then you keep going. You know, our, our ceremony is going to be right after the New Year's. There's stuff in Palm Springs, there's the MBR. Then, you know, we get through all these things. We take another breather and then Sundance happens. Oscar nominations are here and then you have Santa Barbara. And it's just kind of like this fascinating race because one of the things that I've noticed is that a big part of what seems to get people through this season is who has the most stamina for all of these different hurdles. You know, I've noticed that PR people are saying, oh, so, you know, this or that talent is already so worn down by all this stuff. They've well, Francis McDormand is someone who's going to be a very strong contender for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, and I have a very strong sense that the fact that she's not planning to do a whole lot of press isn't going to hurt her that much. So it, it's an interesting stance to take. You have to be in a strong position to get away with it. Whereas somebody like Sean Baker with the Florida Project has to just work it really hard so that people are constantly reminded of what an accomplishment that movie is and they actually really like it because it doesn't have that Francis McDormand selling point that just speaks for itself, you know. So it, it's just notable, you know, when you look at different festival coverage, take a look at the, the photos and see if, if you could tell who's most exhausted. <laughs> and that could be a, a ranked list or something. Um, so before we call it a day, I could tell you a bit about why, why I'm in France right now. I'm envious. I would, I would love to go to Lyon for the Thierry yeah, Frimo's famous festival. I mean, so, I, so I'm, I'm in Lyon for three days, three full days, really. Uh, this, this thing called the Lumiere Festival is uh, it's, it's co-run by Cannes Thierry Frimo and Bertrand Tavernier, the, the filmmaker. And uh, it's, it's tied to the Lumiere Institute, which Thierry runs when he's not running the Cannes Film Festival, which is this very well-funded uh, museum for cinema that's in the basically in the factory where Lumiere shot uh, his famous silent film of women leaving the factory at the end of the day, which is a pretty incredible place to be and see that footage. So it's, it's really a celebration of the origins of cinema. But what they do is they show a lot of classic films. There's actually a market for people who are in classic film distribution. So people like Criterion's Peter Becker are here meeting with different filmmakers and sales agents about getting library distributed, you know, around the world. But they also do this thing called the Lumiere Prize, the pre-Lumiere, that they give to a different filmmaker each year. So this year it's Wong Kar Wai, and they're going to do a, a, you know, big retrospective of all his work and a, and a master class and all that kind of stuff. So it's pretty interesting because it, get, it, it brings that kind of, like, fun festival flavor to a totally different context where you're not just 
celebrating the new, you're celebrating bodies of work and the very act of restoring films. And what's interesting is uh, most of the screens I've been to here have been packed and they're mostly local audiences. So Lyon is a big city. It's not as big as Paris, but the sense I got from people talking to people here is that for a long time, Lyon didn't get the kind of amazing movies that Paris did. And this museum was the first step towards solving that. And now they have this festival, which is in its ninth year, and it is bringing bigger names. Tilda Swinton was here earlier this week. Guillermo del Toro, Quentin Tarantino has been been here before. And, you know, so Thierry's brought in some of the prestige talent from Cannes, but has also been able to kind of galvanize the local audience to feel like they have a very special festival with its own identity. And I think that's something really cool that people should be paying attention to on some level because it's a reminder when we get into this festival cycle, we, we're constantly talking about contemporary film. And the reality is a lot of these movies a year later, we won't remember, we won't be talking about. And you really need distance to look at these the, the bigger picture in a way. So assuming I can survive the next three days, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about what I've I look forward here, to but, hearing uh, about it. And I look forward to going at some point um, and go get yourself some sleep. Oh, yeah, that old thing. OK, talk to you next week. Bye.